0: So, I was thinking a little bit about uh, what we might like to study, and I kept coming across in my reading um, in various portions of scripture allusions to the book of Exodus. And I thought this might be a good study at some point to kind of tease out for us this theme that not only appears in the second book of the Bible, but also finds its way through a lot of different scriptural references. And it led me to thinking a little bit about how echoes of the book of Exodus kind of appear. And it's almost as if you need to know the story and you need to know the nuances of the story of Exodus to kind of know where the other biblical writers uh, are taking the story or changing the story. And you'll understand what I mean by that. Uh, as we move along. So what I want to do over the next three months uh, as we head uh, deeper into the fall is talk a little bit about echoes from Exodus. And we'll spend a lot of time uh, section by section in the book of Exodus, but I'm going to also take you into other parts of the Bible to show you where it kind of appears. And to do that, we need to Uh, get a little bit of understanding about Exodus in general, uh, the book and the event. And so today is going to be introductory. So in part one tonight, uh, all I really want to do is introduce some thoughts that will uh, come back uh, again and again in our discussion in the weeks ahead. So here's the way I'd like to begin. I want to give some introductory concepts that uh, you can uh, kind of hold on to as we look through the different sections of the Book of Exodus. Now, I'm kind of, uh, I'm pretty sure that all of us are familiar with the story, and probably some of us has read through the Book of Exodus. It seems as though when individuals take up the goal of wanting to read through the Bible, one of the things they do is they start uh, at the beginning, like you do any other book, and they read through Genesis and they find the story of the four patriarchs kind of interesting, and then to Exodus. And of course, uh, this particular book of the Bible has been uh, substantiated within the consciousness of American uh, culture because of movies like the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and different things like that. So we're able to kind of associate with um, the story a little bit in a variety of ways. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Exodus and you enter into Leviticus, that's where most people's reading stops because Leviticus is very tedious. It's law driven, full of all kinds of uh, different laws and ceremonies and idiosyncrasies of uh, Judaism. So um, a lot of times people will give up at that point And if they do uh, persevere and and get through Leviticus, what they will see is as they continue to read through the Old Testament is that this emblem of the Exodus is not only celebrated in the Passover of Judaism, but it is also alluded to in a variety of different ways. And it almost becomes emblematic of deliverance. So this big deliverance of a group of people becomes emblematic of how God delivers and so in some ways this story is kind of an archetype and uh, the language of deliverance shows up over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. So as you can see on the screen um, the exodus shapes the telling of the story of a group of people known as the Israelites But it is also the story of the rest of mankind, because there's a lot of similarities that we find that are echoed within different civilizations during different periods of time. And of course, this motif continues when we think about how uh, God leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness and out of the wilderness experience, uh, you find their endurance through the trials and, and so forth. And then another place that it uh, shows up quite often is in the book of Psalms and in the poetry of the Psalter. We find allusions to the Exodus and we find also uh, in the book of Isaiah, Exodus is referred to uh, many times over. So in the rhapsodies of Isaiah's poetries and uh, prophecies, what we find is the uh, exodus is alluded to and finally when you kind of fast forward into the new testament it's amazing that the book of matthew the most jewish of the gospels alludes to the book of exodus as well but also to jesus as the new moses and what we'll find is this uh, appearance of jesus Being a new updated Moses, giving the Sermon on the Mount and other things like that, uh, alluding back to the book of Exodus. So it's an important book in our Old Testament, and um, I'll try to kind of tease that out for us a little bit as we go through the study. So the most important thing, though, to keep in mind is that in the use of the Exodus imagery, It's not just like reciting history, the concepts and the emblem of the Exodus is often transformed and it's reshaped to the needs of the moment of the writer and the reader uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I'll show you what that means as we get to it. Any thoughts to this first slide that I have up here? So what I think is important is to get kind of the big uh, 60,000 foot perspective on Exodus before we kind of look at the text itself beginning next week. So the book of Exodus in many ways sets up the rest of the Torah. And when we use the term Torah, we're referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah is considered the law for this new group of people that emerge out of this empire that has enslaved them. And the question could be raised, why did God deliver Israel? Uh, This certainly is not the first group of people that have been enslaved by another empire. Uh, Why is this particular focus on this group of people? And it will relate back to Abraham, which we're going to look at a little bit tonight. But there's other questions that pop up. And the other questions that pop up are, why is God portrayed the way he is in the book of Exodus? When we read portions of the book of Exodus, uh, God does not look very Christ-like, Um And why is he portrayed that way? And how does that relate to the situation that we find in the book of Exodus and the experience of the people? So I put on the middle of this slide here a couple of examples of what I mean by God being portrayed the way he is in the book. So I find it kind of interesting That the whole book is about delivering one group of people out of slavery, only to find that here in the book of Exodus, we find in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, that um, there is instructions given to Moses on how to treat their own slaves, which is quite interesting. So why would God deliver one group of people out of slavery and then tell them, to uh, treat their slaves in a particular manner. So if you have your Bible, I wanna just kind of point this out to you. Go over to Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 21, it's interesting, uh, only the first several verses here, it says uh, in verse two, if you buy a Hebrew servant, so listen, this isn't a foreign slave. This is a slave of a fellow Jew. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. So that strikes me a bit odd. Oh, You can be married, you can have kids, but those kids are mine when you go. Verse 5, but if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he shall be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now think about the dynamics of that. So it's Hebrew enslaving other Hebrews, it's uh, denying um, denying a man his wife and his children, it's allowing some to have certain privileges and others not. Um, and then the last part here is if if a woman is allowed to go free, well okay, uh, as long as these three things, food, clothing, and marital rights are preserved, uh, she can go free, but we're not going to give her anything to live on. So there's no social net there to help her. So why would she go free? What is she going to do? How is she going to make a living? How is she going to continue to have food? So even that short little paragraph there, sends all kinds of questions, at least in my mind it does. Okay, God, why are you giving these laws this way? Okay, if you're there in your Bible, go over to chapter 32 of Exodus, and another question comes up. And this is the story of the golden calf. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and while he's away, because he has gone too long, the people take all of their gold jewelry, and they melt it down and they form a golden calf. So, um, one question that comes to my mind is, um, you know, how much jewelry does it take to make a golden calf, and how big is this golden calf? If they're melting it down, this, does, you know, as it's portrayed in the Ten Commandments or other films like this, this is a huge thing, you know, and that might not be the case at all. But what we find is that because they do develop this uh, golden calf, which at this point in the story of Israel is not unusual that there are other idols within the Hebrew community. Um, there are times in Genesis where uh, there are idols that they have kind of family household idols and that type of thing and it seems here that this is a source of uh, I guess relieving anxiety because Moses has been away so long so Moses comes back down and uh, what we find taking place is there's this dialogue that takes place between the Lord and Moses And if you come all the way down to verse 35, this is a pretty lengthy chapter that we'll get to later in this study. What's interesting to me is Moses has to intercede on behalf of his people because God is ready to wipe them out. This isn't too long into the story, is it? I mean, when you think about them being delivered, look at verse 31, it says, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. So he's standing in the gap for his people. And then the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Okay, that seems pretty vindictive to me. Uh, Seems to be a little overreactive on the part of God. So this portrayal of God that is found in the book of Exodus is very primitive and It doesn't have any resemblance to the Abba uh, type of God that's represented in the Gospels. So what we have to understand when we read the book of Exodus is that we're reading a story through ancient eyes, and if we can keep that in the back of our mind, it will help us to come to grips with some of these troubling questions that will pop up in this book. Any thoughts or questions that you have there? I don't think that's the only time Moses kind of bargains with God for the Israelites, is it? Doesn't he do it more than once? Yeah, it seems to be part of his job description. (laughs) You know, um, yeah, he does intervene on several occasions. I guess this is the most dramatic because uh, God's wanting to wipe his people out now what is this reminiscent of this is reminiscent of the flood okay uh wiping the people out starting over and so it's almost as if he brokers a deal and it's almost as if what they walk away with is okay you're not going to wipe us out but this plague is certainly going to wipe some of us out type thing So, yeah, you're right, Kelly, he will intervene. And this seems to be one of the more dramatic ones that we find in the Torah, for sure. Other thoughts? Okay. Now, this, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on just for a second, okay? When you talk about motifs that appear in scripture. There is a a link with other scriptures, and that's called intertextuality, intertextuality. Uh, and that is how these scriptures are woven together. Now, a motif is a little bit different than a theme, so you can pick out themes in the Bible, and these themes could be things like hope, love, different themes that pop up in different books, but a motif begins at a particular point in time, and in this case with the exodus, and that motif is very specific, and that motif finds its way into other texts. So you'll see a couple of things uh, of how we can think about a motif. A literary motif gives expression to different ideas and experiences that are inherent in the original situation. So what we're going to find is in other books of the Bible, it'll go back to the Exodus and it will tease out some things that are already there in the story. Secondly, a motif represents the essential meaning of the situation, not necessarily the situation itself. So you have this motif of the people being delivered out of Egypt, And what is the meaning of that? And then how do the other authors use that meaning without not really caring about the historical details of of the story, but more about the meaning of the story? So there's there's a difference there. Thirdly, a motif is a bridge building literary tool that will then be able to span centuries of elapsed time. So, for example, there is a reason that the uh, the African Americans who were enslaved at the beginning of the history of our own country found the Book of Exodus to be their most hopeful and um, assuring type of book in the Bible because that's the situation they were in, and even though their circumstances were different. This motif is a bridge builder to their circumstances. Does that make sense? So that's where a lot of the um, Negro spirituals grow out of this motif that had uh, been on their heart and mind and part of their their hope that someday they too will find freedom. You find it in everything from music to the type of sermons that are preached Uh, this book the book of exodus even to this day to this day in african-american churches preachers will go back to the book of exodus quite often in their sermon preparation because it continues to build uh to the hope that they are hoping for so just think about uh, uh dr martin luther king jr and and his preaching, he builds on this motif, you know. I have a dream that someday my son, my daughter will be able that type of thing. It 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 makes its way across time. It makes its way across uh, um, different uh, different ethnicities and cultures and all that type of thing. Number four. A motif makes an ancient text come alive for the subsequent hearers. So if you ever hear a black preacher preach out of Exodus, it will move you to the core. White people are unable to move us with the story of the book of Exodus like black preachers can. Why? Because they live out of their spirit. Uh, We who are white have too much white privilege. To be able to resonate with that deeply, and to make it come alive like they uh, they are able to do, does that make sense, to everybody? So there's a variety of ways that a biblical motif can appear later, and we'll show some of those along the way. But can I clarify anything here between uh, a the difference between a theme versus a motif? Is that clear enough for you? Okay, all right. Okay, I want you to take a look at this um, chart. I'll probably use it over and over again over the next several weeks. So what you'll find here is that um, a a motif, and it doesn't have to be the Exodus motif, it just happens to be what we're gonna be looking at. So this motif, will sometimes show up later as a direct quote. So a biblical writer will actually quote out of uh, the Exodus scroll. Other times it can be a subtle citation. So it's not a full quote, it's just kind of a citation. And you recognize that it comes out of Exodus, uh, but it's not something that's a direct quote. Then there's other times there's just allusions uh, to the story, and and uh, there's an assumption there that we know the story and the allusions to the story uh, help to uh, flesh out for us um, what is being said in the current situation. And sometimes it's just an echo. Sometimes it's a reminiscence. The psalmist do a lot of that. It's kind of an echo of, of the story itself and so you have all of these direct things that can come later sometimes a direct uh, quote will then turn into a subtle citation or illusion or an echo so these other um, these other arrows are just suggesting that sometimes a writer will take some piece of the book of exodus and then will kind of jump to another way of using it Does that make sense? Okay. Any thoughts there? All right. So let me give to you an example of intertextuality. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 12. So this is part of the Abraham story. In Genesis chapter 12, it's the story of Abraham and Sarah and how they go down to Egypt. Um, The first part of chapter 12 is one of the citations of the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 2, God is talking to Abram, and he says, I want you to go forth from your country, and here's what I'm going to do. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham goes, he sets out. And um, along the way, what we find is in his travels, he comes to experience a troublesome part of this journey. And it says in verse 10, if you jump down to verse 10, uh, that there was a famine in the land. And so he's got to find food somewhere. And so Egypt seems to be a logical choice because they have the Nile River. Uh, there's certainly food in Egypt, even if it isn't in this uh, wilderness area that he's been traveling through. So take a look at verse 10. And I'm just going to read this particular episode and then I'll come back to the slide. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. Then they will kill me but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will treat, be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for his, her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Okay, so when we look at the episode itself, we go, well, how could Abram do that? You know, there's a focus on Abram and Sarai and Pharaoh. But when you back out and you see the interconnection with the motif of the Exodus, you're going to see some similarities here in the story. So if you were to fast forward all the way to the book of Je- to the end of the book of Genesis, you'll find that uh, the people that come out of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's family will go down to Egypt. Now, remember, even in the story of Joseph, um, they go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land to find food. And what we find is by the time you get to the book of Exodus, this family that finds itself in Egypt has grown substantially. So they have been blessed. And as they have been blessed, they became a threat to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh used the opportunity to enslave Abraham's offspring and to use them to build the cities in Egypt. So when we take that in light of what happens at the end of the book of Genesis, here's some of the similarities. Now, part of the promise of being a great nation and part of um, the Abrahamic covenant that is recited in Genesis 15 and 17 as well, is that Abram's going to have the land of Canaan, but he's not going to survive there in Canaan without going down to Egypt because that's where he's going to survive and find food. His life will be in danger there in Egypt. Uh, Some of it was because of his own choice of presenting Sarah as his sister rather than his wife. But the story goes on and uh, there's a plague that begins to take place upon pharaoh uh, because he has taken sarah into his harem and so what we find is that now pharaoh uh says leave go get out of get out of egypt and so he takes his wife and he leaves now that is a very similar core story to the exodus story okay So the question becomes, which story came first? Is it the Abraham story or the Exodus story? Now, when we take a book, we begin at the beginning and we think because we are good uh, Westerners in the way we look at things, that this is all sequential. You start the beginning of a book and you move toward the end. The mistake that we make, with the Bible is the Bible's not a book. It's a library. There's a big difference. Each individual book that makes uh, in the uh, Bible that makes up what we call the Bible can be written at different times by different authors. So you go into a library and you come to a shelf and you do not expect each author, even though it's grouped, Uh, in a particular um, subject matter, let's say. Not all of those authors have the same perspective on the same subject. They're written at different times. They have different perspectives. And yet they are all collected onto a shelf. They're grouped together. The Bible is a grouping of books that has been preserved over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years by different people of faith but it is a library, first and foremost. It's not a book. And these different authors write at different times, just like the copyright of this Bible I'm reading out of uh, was published in 2020. So it's a fairly new Bible, okay? There are other Bibles I have on the shelf at home that were published back in the 70s, back in the 80s, Um, And what we find is there's different times of these publications. So what I'm saying is this. Most scholars believe that the final form of Genesis, as we have it in our Bible, does not come to its final form until after the exile. Which means when when these stories that had been handed down, and grouped together by different scribes, they often tailor the story to be reflective of a biblical motif. So even though the Abraham story comes earlier earlier historically, it might come later uh, as as a piece of literature. Does that make sense? And as a result of that, there is often... The dominant motifs that are important that are rewritten with that motif. And those that are most familiar with uh, the motifs go, Oh my, you see this? Abraham and we, the people, we went through a very similar experience. And so, what gives them hope is as they read the Abraham story in Egypt, they read their own story in Egypt, and remember. That the people of Israel never were free after the exile. even, Even after they come back from being exiled to Babylon, they're never free. First it's Babylon, then it's Medo Persia, then it's Greece, and finally in the New Testament, it's Rome. They're subject. And so what these people are doing is looking back to this Exodus motif and seeing the stories that are parallel to the Exodus motif to give them hope that someday they too will be set free. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So you had to put your thinking cap on there a little bit because this is, you don't pick this stuff up because as Westerners, we read a book from beginning to end and we don't uh, don't look at at it as a library. Okay. Now this might help. So this is a play on words, the genesis of Exodus. So the big question is in the book of Exodus, when did this happen? And what actually did happen? Sometimes the questions come up, did this really happen? Or is this something that was kind of again using the Exodus motif um these these things were elaborated upon and embellished upon okay now this often gets some people quite nervous because they hold so tightly to either inspiration or inerrancy that they think that every part of this library has to agree from front to back And it doesn't, I'll just give you, I'll just, you know, let you know, there's a lot of things that don't agree in the Bible. And that's okay, because you expect that out of different perspectives. However, what we find is that sometimes we have been taught. So I'm just curious, how many of you were taught that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, one day he sat down and he wrote it all down. Scholars will tell you, knowing the language, that there's different types of languages that are used in the text. There's different uh, syntax. There's different things that are used. And there's different influences, so there, we won't get into this tonight, but there's a theory called the JEPD theory that there are different influences that come out in the text, so. Here's the traditional view that Moses wrote it somewhere around 1446 BC. And that's based on one verse. So, in 1 Kings Six: one, it says that the temple was built four hundred and eighty years after the exodus. What we find, though, is that the um, there, even if you do the dating on it and you try to correspond it with archaeology, there's some trouble spots in that. So scholars have suggested that this is a a, a book that comes together much later. And it has a really long and diverse history to it. And the question that is often asked, who wrote, wrote the book of Moses? Uh, I mean, wrote the book of Exodus? Well, maybe Moses wrote part of it, but he didn't write all of them. And the same thing is true through, for the rest of the Torah. Now you tell me in the book of Deuteronomy how Moses wrote about his own death, okay? It's right there at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So there's different influences that come into play. And it's written over a course of time. It probably comes into its final form right around uh, the exile and a little bit after the exile, which means in its final form, it's probably comes together around the sixth century or so BC, okay? All right, so this is kind of, stuff we have to wade through, unfortunately, to get to the text itself. So the question of the historicity of the book of Exodus isn't an easy question to answer. Um, And even the story itself has some troublesome spots to it. Um, And yet there is something that happened there. We know that something happened there, but what is really what is really interesting is if you think that hundreds of thousands of people or a million people left Egypt in the Exodus. And it's this story is found no place else but the Bible. There's no other corroborating evidence anywhere of this exodus happening. You have to ask, well, why? Oh, maybe the uh, the Egyptians just were covering this up because it embarrasses them. Yeah, but what about the Canaanites and the Perizzites and, and the Hittites and uh, the Philistines and all these others that would love to bring all this out and dump it on the shame of Egypt? You, you see what I'm saying? They wouldn't ignore this. But what we find is this is the only place it occurs. So did it happen? Yes. Did it happen the way it's written? Mm, Maybe not. So I want to introduce you to a term. It's called mythicized history. And what that is, is a myth is taking the cultural elements of the day and adding it to the story. Now, when we, when we think of myth, we, we think, Of a story that's made up that didn't happen. Okay? Wipe that definition out of your mind. A myth in biblical literature is a story, usually about the gods in some way. And ancient people tried to make sense of their world. And so it was always related to the cosmic realm. The different gods created this and that and influences this and that. In, on Earth. So mythicized history is not the same thing as historicized myth. Let me say that again. That's very important. Mythicized history is not the same thing as historicized myth. Historicized myth is a story that never happened, but is made to present uh, as if it really happened, you know, like the stealing of an election. That's historicized myth. Okay, the election wasn't stolen, but it has been, um, uh, this myth has been historicized so that people will still hang on to it. There's not a shred of evidence that that happened. But mythicized history is taking a kernel of something that happened that has um, historical roots to it and then gives to it flavor gives to it meaning, gives to it definition. So an example of this is A Tale of Two Cities. This particular novel is a story, but it was a way of talking about the French Revolution. And if you know that, you can see the parallels and insights as you read the, the book. So to help me in this, I've asked Dr. Pete Ennis. Help
1: Larry,
0: I'm having
2: trouble hearing that. I don't know if anyone else is.
0: Oh, you know what? I'm going to, I forgot to share it. I'm gonna stop share, hold on a second. And we're gonna share it. And and I I forgot to hit this share sound. Thank you for letting me know that. Okay. Okay, we're gonna come back to it. You should be able to hear it now. Okay, here we go.
1: Okay folks, so did the story of the Exodus actually happen? That story of Moses and delivering the Israelite slaves and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's a very good question and it's also unfortunately or fortunately a little bit complicated to answer just with a simple yes or no. For example, there are some reasons why scholars tend to think that there's something to this story in terms of it having happened in history. For example, um, who would make up a story like this? This is about Israel's origins as a people, and to say not only to say that you know we were enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians, but that our God let that happen. This is a major shame factor. So it's hard to see this just being made up out of whole cloth. Also, another reason why scholars think that there's something historical going on here is because of the names. There are Egyptian echoes in the Book of Exodus, and. One of those is has to do with names. So, for example, Moses is not a Hebrew name; it's an Egyptian name. We see that with, um, you know, some of the pharaohs have this name Moses at the end, like King Tut Moses. Moses means born of, so Tut Moses means uh, the pharaoh is born of the god Tut. So. For Moses to have that name, it seems like there's some, something really Egyptian going on there. So you've got some reasons for thinking that there is something that intersects with history going on in this story. On the other hand, there are a couple of reasons why scholars have really questioned whether this is a historical story straight through. I mean, for example, there's no evidence for this having happened. There's no record or evidence of Israelites being slaves in Egypt. Uh, There is no record of them wandering through the desert for 40 years and, you know, they probably would have left debris or something that archaeologists with rather sophisticated means can figure out. And it's not like people aren't looking for it. Now, the fact that nothing's been found doesn't mean in and of itself nothing happened, but it just seems very, very implausible at this point in time, there's no evidence for it. Also, there's no record of this in Egypt, and that's the kind of thing you might expect for them to say something about what happened. Now, some people think, well, you know, listen, of course the Egyptians didn't mention it because it's embarrassing that they got bested by slaves and their slave god. But that's not how it works. If something really bad happens, what you do in the ancient world is you spin it, you make it look, you give reasons that help you save face for why this happened. But we don't see that. And even forget Egypt for a second. If this something is monumental as about probably two million people leaving Egypt, that's a big deal. And other nations would have heard about it. You know, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. Somebody would have mentioned, you know, you guys don't have much of a history there. You in Egypt, you got bested by the slave God.
0: Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to, I don't know why that stopped, but you get the idea. I'm going to go to this other video, and here he's talking a little bit about uh, mythicized history. And so he's going to help me explain that here
2: hey everybody welcome to another late thursday video i apologize i don't know where my head's been the past like four months is just like i'm always like a day behind everything and people are starting to notice anyway uh good morning this is not cheap advertising but i actually like this mug i've washed it a bunch of times in um in the dishwasher and it's not rubbing off which is a good sign so anyway hey listen today's video my one day late thursday video uh, is about history i've been thinking about this lately in part because i'm teaching a course at eastern on uh, torah which is a lot of fun i love teaching that course but the question history always comes up what happened did it happen how do we know what happened all these kinds of things and there's a concept that uh is is use that I think is very helpful in talking about the Bible and history. Cause you know, it is sort of a perennial challenge for us, you know, as we read this stuff and, and some things we don't even want to have happened like slaughtering and things like that. But you know, what what is the Bible from a historical point of view and the term that is used a lot um, in among biblical scholars and even, I shouldn't say that, but also among some evangelical scholars are comfortable with this as well. The concept is mythicized history, which means something as a historical kernel or historical core, something happened, <clears throat> but the telling of the story that we find in the Bible is overlaid with mythical tones and mythical categories because that's how ancient people told their stories of great significance. It's history, but it's history that's overlaid with with myth, which is powerful and meaningful and defining and penetrating and all those kinds of things in the ancient world. Now, mythicized history is not the same thing as historicized myth, It's the exact opposite. Historicized myth is taking something that is fundamentally mythical and adding some historical elements to it to make it seem like it's historical and whether that sort of thing happens in the bible or not i think that's worth uh you know exploring but with respect to israelite history specifically israelite origins where they came from and the deep past long before the monarchy you know the conquest the the exodus patriarchs creation flood all those kinds of things the question is, what about those elements and how, how do we define them best and understand them best? And I found that mythicized history is a really helpful way of thinking about it. So, for example, the, uh, the flood story is is a really good example because, you know, most will routinely agree that there's something historical in this flood story. It's not just a made up deluge of some sort but it's something cataclysmic in the ancient world that, that drove people to write explanations. And there is, there is geological evidence for a, a massive deluge in that part of the world. We're not talking about a global flood here, <clears throat> but we're talking about a, a, a massive localized flood, which would have been understood as a worldwide flood at the time. But there's archaeological, geological rather, evidence for a massive deluge in the middle of the third millennium BC, you know, long before like Abraham and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that may have spurred on these various stories from all these different peoples around there, not just the Israelites, to talk about why would the gods do this or why would God do this? And the stories that are told in ways that don't just make it like a bad rainstorm or a flood or a tsunami or something, but it, it becomes part of the grander cosmic story of the gods and what they're doing and humans and the relationship between humans and the gods. And that's why the flood story is different from all these different cultures because they're looking at things from a different point of view mythologically they have different myths that they're trying to incorporate into this historical event if that's not too convoluted a way of putting it so you have the israelites telling their flood story with mythic overtones the uh i mean one really good example is uh the 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 windows of of the dome that's over that's keeping the the waters of chaos out uh, referring back to genesis chapter one where you have a separation you have a dome and you have the waters above the waters beneath in chapter seven in the middle of the flood story the windows of the heavens open up releasing those chaos waters which is to say to press reset on creation you're sort of starting over again so the flood was understood to be an act of recreation not just a really bad rainstorm but something god did to undo the order that God had created in chapter one. Now you have chaos again. And so when the waters recede and the dry land appears again, you have a recreation event. And so Noah becomes a new Adam figure. That's one example. Uh, Another example is uh, the Exodus story. Because here too, right in the crossing of the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds, you have uh, the, the waters again separating like they do in Genesis 1 and dry land appears this is in chapter 14 and the Israelites walk safely across it and then the Egyptians get drowned because the waters come again just like the flood story they come crashing down on the Egyptians so Israel Israel's birth as a nation so to speak is an event of God creating a new people with Moses as sort of an atom figure and It's it's not just the story of release of slavery, but it's connected to cosmic and primordial events See, that's that's what makes it a mythic retelling. And you know what's the there is probably I mean I think there is a an authentic historical kernel in this I think the exodus story is mythicized. History, the story is told with mythic overtones because that's how you tell stories like that but it's rooted in something and and most scholars except for maybe you know a a minority of of scholars who are extremely skeptical probably more so than they need to be but most will say that there is something historically behind the biblical exodus story it's not the way the bible tells the story because that's a mythicized rendering of historical events but the thought that people would tell their story voluntarily creating a notion of, um, you know, we, we came from slaves, that's our origins. It's, it's unlikely that this doesn't make a lot of sense, That you make up something like that. And there are other echoes in, in the Exodus story that sound very Egyptian. Some of the names are Egyptian. Moses is an Egyptian name, Aaron is an Egyptian name, Phineas is an Egyptian name. There, there are Egyptian echoes in the story that suggest um, a verisimilitude of history, something that really looks like something historical is going on there. Now, if we were sitting there with a video camera, that old thing, you know, uh, what would we see at the Exodus? I have no earthly idea, but something happened. But the story that we have is delivered to us already highly mythologized, which means highly theologized. It's, it's an interpretation of events to say something about their faith in God and what it means to be the people of God at the time.
0: Okay, so I think that this particular um, couple of videos kind of illustrates for us some of the things that um, is, uh, we're, we're trying to get our arms around a little bit. And so we'll, at times, ask this question in our study through Exodus. What are the historical roots of this? And what does it mean to the people that are beginning as the people of God uh, in covenant relationship with God? And uh, so we'll come back to that. Uh, I want to get to one more thing before we close off tonight. And that is... Um, one more video that will illustrate how this idea of mythicized history is around us all the time. So um, I was thinking a little bit about this particular um, podcast I introduced to you a few weeks ago called Reflections of History uh, by John Meacham. So back on August 15th, I think it was. Uh, this was the daily five minute uh, thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I had never heard it before. So I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it was an annual event to get around the TV and watch The Wizard of Oz. Okay. And I forget what month they showed it to tell you the truth. But every year, religiously, we would sit down. When I'm. That's February I that sounds about right yeah so we'd sit down around the tv and we'd watch the wizard of oz all over again so uh I want you because you probably you might be aware of this but maybe you aren't that is that story was telling another story watch
3: shining city audio a john meacham and c13 original studio August 15th, 1939, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz premieres in Hollywood. I'm John Meacham, and this is Reflections of History. It's com slash reflections.
0: Okay, here it comes.
3: A confession. The Wizard of Oz terrified me as a child. I was one of the innumerable millions of Americans who encountered the 1939 movie when it was televised annually. It wasn't Dorothy or Toto or the Tin Man, the Scarecrow or the Cowardly Lion, nor even the Wizard or the Flying Monkeys. No, Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West was what set me off, often for days afterward. I suspect I wasn't alone. And this I know for sure, I wasn't alone in looking forward to the movie every year. In 1965, Time magazine wrote, The program has become a modern institution and a red-letter day in the calendar of childhood. The movie, based on the novel by Frank Baum, premiered in theaters on this date in 1939, just as World War II was about to begin. It was shown in small theaters in Wisconsin and on Cape Cod before its larger release. The book is more complicated than one might think. As scholars have noted, the novel, published in 1900, was also a political allegory on the changing nature of America as the Gilded Age gave way to the Progressive Era. I'm indebted to Thomas F. Schaller, who wrote this in The Baltimore Sun in 2015. What I didn't know as a child, most adults I meet are similarly oblivious, is that the book upon which the movie is based was a political allegory for American politics at the dawn of the 20th century. Doris, the Kansas Innocent, represents the nobility of Middle and Midwestern America. The Tin Man is industry. The Scarecrow is agriculture. Mr. Baum depicted the bimetallism argument of the late 19th century waged between Eastern capitalist lenders and Midwestern farmer-borrowers through the use of colorful metaphor. Notice that the city Dorothy and friends seek is emerald green, and the fraudulent Oz peers through green shades. The yellow brick road they follow there and Dorothy's silver slippers represent the argument over whether the United States should have a gold and silver or gold-only currency standard. The ruby slippers Judy Garland wore in the film version are a departure from the original book. The Wizard of Oz may not be the greatest political film of all time. But it's surely the most popular film that most people don't realize is political so wrote thomas schaller the film was not the biggest of blockbusters in real time and it was re-released a decade later and in 1955 before becoming a staple of appointment viewing which is an anachronistic phrase since all viewing was by appointment in those days in 1956. the lessons of the movie i think include a kind of knowingness, an awareness that all is not as it necessarily seems. That the phrase, the man behind the curtain endures in the vernacular, suggests that image is not always reality. So all in all, I'm glad I watched, even if I was scared. A little discomfort, it turns out, can be a good thing. Thank you for listening to Reflections of History. A creation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham Studio.
0: Okay, so we'll come back to this next week. I'll show you a little bit of the map uh, in which Exodus takes place and a very simple outline here. And then I'll get started with some of the big ideas. but. Um, as we kind of close off today, uh, do you have any questions, anything that we can help clarify before we say good night? You guys never have any oh, questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So hopefully this will be interesting. And uh, all we did was try to lay a little bit of uh, footwork for what we'll study in the in the weeks ahead, so. thanks for being with us. And uh, if you don't have any other questions, I'll say good night. Okay.
3: Thanks, Larry. Thank you. Good night.
0: Take care.